Spencer Glendon of Probable Futures, I, I do want to tell you that your work has already transformed how I view my days and sometimes my hours. And right now, when we finish this conversation in a couple of hours, I've got an HVAC guy coming over to our house because one zone of our house, the family room, is not working. And I live in Atlanta and it's getting hot. And because of the concepts that you have framed for us, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm, I'm a nomad right now, moving from one room to the other, except that's easy. And it's not going to be so easy down the road. So you can pick it up from there. But I, but I did notice that one of your creative partners actually used that metaphor of uh, HVAC. We, we're basically trying to repair the HVAC system of the entire earth. I, I'll tell you about a, a moment I had when I, there was very clarifying for me in this work. And we can go back to how I got started on this work, but I, my wife and I, for a long time, didn't own a car. And uh, we could walk to work where we lived and we would occasionally rent a car. There was a local rental service around here that we could use easily. Um, and I got into somebody's car and I hadn't been in a lot of cars. I got into somebody's nice car and I found that there was a thermostat on both sides of the car. The driver and the passenger could choose their own climate. And I thought, first of all, it's kind of preposterous because they're in such close proximity to each other. But I also thought of two things that related. One is that we become so accustomed to having control over our environment that even moderate differences between people who are sitting right next to each other were to be indulged by our machines. Machines were there to, to indulge us in having slightly different climates, even right next to each other. And the setting on the, the person's car was that it was 70 degrees uh, for both passenger and driver at the time. And I thought, you know what, a modern person in the developed world, how much of their life do they spend at 70 degrees? And I realized for many of them, you know, within five degrees of 70 degrees, it's basically all the time because they live in a world that's got a thermostat in their house, in their car, at their work, in whatever venue they're in. And if it's not a comfortable temperature outside, they don't go outside. When it's around 70 degrees, they enjoy and they indulge and they go outside. And then I started thinking even about very prosperous people in the United States and elsewhere who, when it gets cold in Michigan or Minnesota, they move. They go somewhere where it's around 70 degrees. And this idea of control became really clarifying to me because temperature is actually the, the measurement of how fast the atoms in the atmosphere are vibrating. And what people are doing is desiring complete control over the atoms around them. They want the, the world around them to behave in the most pleasant way. And once they've set it at whatever their pleasant way is, they want it all that way all the time. And I realized we were exercising this control in a way that was so extreme that it detached us from the physical world. There were all these sensations we were not having, the sensation of cold, the sensation of extreme warmth, that it became harder probably for them to imagine what a really hot day would be like, what a really cold day would be like that the extremes became, they were insulated from them. And also just as somebody who understands the physical world pretty well, think about how much energy that is to make the atoms around you dance to whatever 
song you want them to dance to, exactly the tempo, exactly the speed. And I thought, you know, the cost of all this control is just so high. It's so much energy to make that control uh, um, so complete that in the in the process of doing this, we're actually modifying the atmosphere. So we're actually making the outside world less hospitable. There are actually fewer nice days. There are fewer in the, in the temperate zones of the world. There are fewer 70 degree days. There are more days that are brutally hot and more days that are sticky or more days that are rainy because of ways, because of the energy we've trapped in the atmosphere. And so this process of trying to get the atoms around us to behave just the way we want them, we're actually losing control of the system that gave us naturally nice days. And you had this trade-off that I thought, man, this isn't worth it. And I remember just sort of saying, can I roll down the window in the car I was in? Can we just have whatever's outside for a while and, and feel that? By the way, what year did this happen, this, this epiphany? This would probably be 2014, something like that. So this is before you took the deep dive into climate, it sounds like. Yeah, I had just started. What happened, so I started working on climate change in 2012, principally out of curiosity. So I had been working in finance. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm Michael Shoulder, and I'm interrupting now from the Wavemaker edit room on that sentence. He started working on climate change principally out of curiosity. I've always called Wavemaker Conversations a podcast for the insanely curious. On this program, we do take detours. That's often where we learn the most interesting things. So we're about to take a detour to learn how Spencer Glendon's curiosity led him to a very successful career in the world of finance, which is one of the reasons a lot of people are paying close attention to his work now on climate change at Probable Futures. And I also want to urge you not to skip the last 15 minutes of our conversation, where Glendon opens up about a debilitating illness he had during adolescence, as well as a diagnosis in his early 30s that would require a liver transplant. Glendon's personal story was clarifying and motivating for him, and it may be for many of you too, because his health battle taught him how, in his words, to live a wonderful life within limits, which is a really important concept in the context of a rapidly warming climate. So please be patient. I believe your patience will pay off and that you will conclude that Wavemaker Conversations is a place where curiosity meets hope. So I started working on climate change in 2012 principally out of curiosity. So I had been working in finance as a sort of an odd duck in the financial community, which is to say, I've never read the Wall Street Journal. I couldn't tell you on a given day where the Dow or the or interest rates were exactly. They weren't what I was interested in. I was interested in puzzles. And I was interested in how the world had become what it was and what it might become in the future. So part of the reason I was uh, I'd left academia was I liked working on the future. I liked thinking about what would be. And in academia, there's really only place for studying the past. And I realized that it really wasn't permitted to work on the future if you were in academia. And that finance was a place where you could do that. Now, finance has different rules and different uh, orthodoxies and different norms than academia. 
what I found is I could use pretty academic and rigorous practices to investigate the world and then say, here's something that's not going to last. Here's something that people have built into their norms or expectations and is likely to, to break. And so every, almost everybody in finance uses some kind of model. Let me pause you for one second, because just so we understand where you were, what you were studying in academia, what, what was your specialty at that time? So when I was uh, in graduate school, I studied uh, economic history and urban economics. I was interested in how it was that some cities boomed and busted and why it was that some cities boomed and busted and other cities grew in perpetuity. I grew up around Detroit and was obsessed with how and why terrible things happened in Detroit. Well, nearby where I lived in Ann Arbor, there was prosperity. And so how prosperity and catastrophe could be so close together was my obsession. I was actually first um, an industrial engineer. I thought I would fix Detroit one factory at a time. I worked in an auto plant for Ford Motor Company. And then I spent the years following uh, my undergraduate work trying to understand how different kinds of places work. So I actually learned German and moved to Germany because it was prosperous and made good cars and had a middle class. And then I came back and I worked in the United States on the south side of Chicago in a bank that served a, a black community and where I was one of the few non-black employees. Um, just trying to understand how I could help and also how did that place work that was sort of outside of the mainstream economy. And let me pause you there again, because again, I've seen snippets of your biography, but nobody's ever done a deep or deeper, slightly deeper dive into that. But that's fascinating to me. So you came back from Germany, you went to the South side of the Chicago, very poor, predominantly black neighborhood loan in, in the lending field or in some other field. I already had a degree in engineering. I had been a, what's called a Fulbright scholar. But I felt like I needed to learn things that I couldn't be taught in school. And so I took a, an entry-level job in a bank on the south side of Chicago, basically processing forms for people who wanted to borrow money to open a Domino's pizza or uh, improve the building of their muffler shop. They would, it was commercial lending in a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. And I was helping them organize uh, their paperwork and get prepared to present their loan case to the loan committee. And in the process, I learned what people dreamed of, what they hoped for, um, also how they perceived the world and uh, and how they understood the financial system. And so it was a great experience. It was a great uh, learning experience. And from there, I was asked to uh, actually run a small business lending program in central Russia which is a, uh, was a real, you know, in, 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 uh, you would need some deus ex machina in a, in a play to make that happen. What really happened was that I worked for a guy who uh, was asked if his bank could run a lending program in Russia and he should have said no. And instead he said yes. And then had the problem of finding someone to go do that work. And I, I worked for, really talented black people who wanted to work in a black neighborhood, not live in Nizhny Novgorod in the middle of Russia. And instead of saying no to the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, my boss said, well, we've got this one kid who's 24 years old and uh, he might go. And so they asked me and I said, sure. And so I moved to central Russia um, at the end of 1993 and ran a small business lending program, built a small business lending program in this city of Nizhny Novgorod. 
which was very much the kind of thing I wanted to do was say, here's a place where markets don't work very well. Can we figure out how to create prosperity in this place? This was just a couple of years after the wall fell. Was it, I mean, it was 1993. Effectively in that place, it was effectively two years later. Um, and so the, the, the wall fell in 89 by 91. Uh, so this was in the early years of Yeltsin essentially, um, that, that I was there. Um, and the Russian banks had been, uh, sort of functional arms of the government, not actual lending institutions. And so I was working with local banks to figure out how they could lend money to small businesses who also had no history. They had no credit rating. They had never operated independently before. And so these bankers, I'm sorry, these, these bakers and brickmakers and accountants and dentists wanted to start their own businesses and had no history of doing that. And so we had to figure out a way to do what we had done in the United what I had done in the United States, which is have forms that people would fill out to say, here's what my business is. Here's what I hope it becomes. Um, here are my plans. Here's my collateral, such as it is, and figure out how to help them make the markets work for them, make markets work for them. So this place called Nizhny Novgorod, which was sort of like the Milwaukee of Russia, if you will, it was about a million people. It was somewhat industrial, uh, uh, several hundred kilometers east of Moscow. Um, but it was a lesson for me in how much of modern life in the West was actually conditional on all kinds of institutions already existing. Um, and so here, none of those institutions existed. And so understanding how, I think you've probably heard me in other contexts talk about civilization, how much, how many institutions there were on top of which finance sits. So I had worked in banking, but you know the purview of banking in the United States is not to figure out why the legal system is the way it is, or why the cultural norms are the way they are, or why the infrastructure is what it is. And um, and in in Russia, I had this one guy who was a, a brickmaker. Was his factory made bricks? He said, "Look, Russia only has two problems, according to Gogol. They are fools and bad roads." And you can see that my road is shit. So you only need to decide one thing. Um, there's only one decision you could, for you to make, which is you know, implicitly whether he was a fool or not. And I realized how much of Russian infrastructure from the roads to the rules to the laws um, was not suited to make this community work in a functional way. And so I actually went back to the United, when I moved back to the United States, I went to graduate school to learn economic history and understand how did we get here? How did we get to the point that we are in the United States and in Europe and in Japan? Uh, what were the institutions along the way? And, and how much of that is actually permanent and how much of it is actually, we assume it, but it could go away. It's based on a set of assumptions. And so when I finished uh, graduate school, um, I had offers to become a professor and offers to, to work in finance. And I wasn't particularly interested in money, but I also wasn't particularly interested in just mining the past for patterns. And so when I went to work in finance, I was very fortunate to be given essentially permission to work on, on, on open-ended topics. Both my employer and I took the, my hiring as kind of a lark. Like, let's see. I was fully prepared to be unemployed in 18 months. Who, By the way, who was this employer? 
this company called Wellington Management. So this is when you started, and I know about your association with Wellington. So this this was in the early 90s then, right after- This is in 1999 when I started. And they hired me in 1999 because the Asian financial crisis had just happened. And in the Asian financial crisis, uh, they hadn't done particularly well. And the people they had as in-house experts on Asia had not uh, guided them in, in successful ways. And frankly, Wellington was a very American firm that had started to have a presence globally and didn't understand the rest of the world very well and asked me effectively, could you figure out what we might do in Asia? What should we do in Asia? And so I was asked to cover, as it's called, Asia X Japan, which is everything from Indonesia to Korea. So there were nine countries. And after a short period of time, I went to my boss and after touring Asia and looking around saying, there's no way I can do this job. Like nobody should be asked to do this job, but I think I can figure out China. And at that time in 1999, China was pretty insignificant financially. It wasn't a very big economy. There was nothing to buy or sell, but this is relevant for why I wound up doing the work I did later, which was, I said, you know, because nobody works on it, actually there are very few informed people about it. No one spends time investigating it very much. And I think I might be able to figure it out. And if I figure it out, there's some chance that it's a big deal. And so I spent sort of the 1999, 2000, 2001, spending a lot of time in China. I happened to speak okay Chinese because I learned Chinese so I could talk to my wife's parents. But understanding what was changing in China, what was possible in China, and I wound up with recommendations and insights about how commodity markets would change globally, about how interest rates would change globally, about how wages would change globally. In fact, the middle class that I was so interested in preserving and, and helping in the United States, I saw as being terribly at risk because there were 300 million Chinese people who were about to enter the labor force who were all high school educated and who had a wage that was less than $1,000 a year at the time. But so I came up with this realization that has carried me since 2000, really, that academia and most industries are divided into small pieces. And those small pieces are pretty orthodox. So if you went to Wellington or Goldman Sachs or Deutsche Bank or HSBC or even a, a, an exotic hedge fund, the slices, the, there would be somebody who did autos, there'd be somebody who did transport, there'd be somebody who did steel, somebody who did oil those slices would be pretty much the same everywhere. And the same is true in academia, which is that there are these disciplines that are very finely defined. And as a, as a species, we have divided the world up into pieces, become expert, had people become expert in these pieces. And in aggregate, I would say we as a species know a lot more, but individually, we actually know very little. We have our own domains. And what I realized was, there are topics that cross domains and nobody works on them. Like literally nobody works on them in finance or in other things. And that was true of China. China had the potential to be big, but because there was nothing to buy or sell, nobody worked on it. And I wound up with this view that actually it would change lots of things. And that turned out to be very fruitful uh, for the investment community. And so I developed a practice over the years of finding other topics that nobody worked on in finance because they just weren't well-defined or they were too broad. But clarify for me, or be more specific about what is it that you were able to 
uh, intermingle in your analysis of China that ended up producing successful investments? Sure. So uh, a couple of things. So the first was understanding that actually the Chinese had an enormous infrastructure that already was extremely productive, and they were likely to build a lot more of it. So it was a physical infrastructure that connected the country, but also sort of a cultural infrastructure. It was all one language or other things about it. But also that the communist government had done an amazing job of educating everybody through high school. So actually literacy rates in China were higher than the United States, um, despite the fact that the difference in per capita income was sort of 40 to one. And so you had this group of people who were moderately skilled and could be trained to do lots of things, who had wages of less than $1,000. And I realized that there were more of them than there were actual workers in industrial workers in Europe, for example. It was a, and that never before in history had that many people entered the labor market in a very short period of time. Mm. So what people, a lot of people knew was that there had been the one-child policy in China. Well, the reason for the one-child policy is there were so many children. They had had this enormous number of children in a very short period of time. And that group of people, they educated quite well, and they were all entering the labor force at the same time. And the government said, we need to find ways to keep these people busy. We need to find ways to keep these people occupied. That's why we will open up the markets, labor markets in particular, for them to work. And so what I did was go around the country to actually 24 different provinces to see where these, in every place, was there this activity? Was there the building of cities? Was there the building of in industry? Were there you know, schools, new universities? And the answer was that the path towards economic development was being paved by the government in ways that were quite orthodox already in the West. And people might have been dismissive of China because it was communist or dismissive of China because it was exotic or because it was closed or because they just had no familiarity. But what I could see was actually the path to being a middle income country is pretty well paved by, pre by precedent. And they were literally paving their country to make that happen. And so what I came away thinking was, for example, the price of commodities globally will go up because the Chinese will buy so much oil and gas and cement and other things, but the price of labor will go down because there'll be so many new workers. And so in the past, if you invested in commodities, um, commodities were a, a precursor to inflation. If oil went up, inflation would go up. And I had the view that actually there would be times when oil would go up a lot and inflation would go down because wages globally would go down as a result. So we'd have no inflation. And the other thing about it was that a view that the Chinese would actually wind up saving an enormous amount of money, that the, the pace of their income growth would be um, quite dramatic and they would be unlikely to spend at the same pace they were earning. And so they would wind up with this huge amount of savings. Was that an insight you got from just understanding and living with the culture or was it something else? It was mostly that, which is which mostly just that... So. I actually spent some time, this may interest you, I spent some time understanding, I realized how quickly wages were rising in China. So the average person's wage was going up almost 20% a year. And I tried to figure out where in history had that happened before? And the answer is not very many places. And in the places where it happened in the past, 
So San Francisco during both of its big booms, Chicago in the early part of the 20th century, um, norms would change very quickly because nobody knew how to live. If your income is growing 20% a year, every three and a half years, you have twice as much income. There's something called the rule of 72, which is that if you take something that's compounding, you divide the rate of compounding into 72 and you get how many years it takes to double. So something that's growing at 72% compounding actually doubles every year. And so I realized that people's incomes are growing now here. Every three and a half years, they're doubling. They don't know what to buy. They don't know how to spend that money. And so you wind up with a high savings rate because there's all this basically surprise earnings. This is a group of people who had never had incomes go up. And now they had this surprise. The second insight is one that I'm, I'm happy to share. I've never talked about in this way before, but there were some very good economists um, who worked on China and all of them had roughly the same forecast. And this gets to the rule of 72 in a second. So their forecast was that China would grow about 8% a year in GDP terms. And then that also there would be some amount of currency appreciation and there'd be some amount of inflation. Well, at the time, uh, Japan had an economy of, of $4 trillion and China of $1 trillion. So Japan was four times as large as China. And Japan was not growing. And I was really puzzled because it seemed to me that China would be extremely dynamic, but nobody else who worked on China seemed particularly interested in it. And so I invited the economists from all of these institutions to come to see me. And I surveyed them in the following way. I said, can you tell me, first question was, when will China be bigger than Japan in dollar terms, in GDP terms? And the lowest answer was 22 years. Wow. Most people said 25. And I said, okay, can you tell me your expectations for Japanese growth? The answer was zero GDP growth, zero currency growth, and zero inflation. So Japan will stay at 4%, four, at $4 trillion, basically, in perpetuity. They've proven to basically be right about that. Okay, that was the accurate forecast. I said, can you tell me how China will grow? They said, well, it'll be 8% GDP growth. They said, okay, what about currency? Well, the currency will probably appreciate about 3%. What about inflation? We think there'll be about 3% inflation. Well, if you add those numbers up, you, you get 14 and so I said, well, we're talking about something here that's around 15, 14, 15%. Um, so that would double every five years. And they said, yeah. I said, well, okay. So China's at a trillion dollars. We double in five years, it's two. We double in five more years, it's four. So by your math, China will be the size of Japan in 10 years. And they said, well, that's impossible. And I said, well, I don't know what we're arguing about here. And the real thing was just, it was hard to imagine that China could get four times bigger in 10 years. It was hard to conceive of the idea that Japan, which had been the second most important place in the world, would be quickly relegated to third or fourth most important place. And so we, uh, there were times where I'd say, I'm not sure, are we arguing about how math works? Are we arguing about arithmetic? Because it seems to me that your own numbers, which have mostly proven to be right, but the insight from it was one they were just reluctant to embrace. They couldn't imagine a world where China was vastly more important than Japan very, very quickly. And that's exactly what happened. So listen, I, you know, that phrase, they could not imagine, gets right to your work today. 
and I don't want to sh- I don't want to short circuit the transition because I'd really love to know how much money were you able to make your firm by this insight that China was going to grow a lot faster than anybody else imagined. But just, you know, if, if you can tell me anything about that, I'd be fascinated. And then we can move to how you are trying to help us imagine the future based on the numbers and the physics that you are drawing from in science. So um, I'll answer your question in two ways about the impact of my work. And I was very fortunate to work in a place where people really listened to what I had to say. And also where I had a lot of contact with clients and our clients were mostly big pension funds. And so the big pension funds, I developed strong relationships with a lot of the clients because for the big pension funds, the, they would say, well, this seems like a really big deal. We need to do something at scale to consider this. But within the firm, all of the investors were divided into those little slices. And those slices were almost always tied to a benchmark. And that benchmark was very rigorous in the sense that if you were the portfolio manager for, I'll call it mid-cap growth stocks, Well, there's an index and you needed to be close to that index all the time. So your degrees of freedom around of what you could invest in were very few actually. And so you'd get a big idea from somebody else. There wasn't a lot you could do with that big idea. And so what happened was, I think some of the insights were distributed around the firm in ways that added marginally, but it was a case where sort of what I would call an inframarginal insight, a big change it's actually very hard to incorporate. And we see this now, I'll jump ahead a little bit, I'll go back in a minute, but to, with climate change, which is everybody thinks in their domain, it will be small. If you back up enough, people will acknowledge, boy, the, the, people will say simultaneously, the world is coming to an end and it's not that big a deal for my discipline. And that mindset that, well, where I live, what I work on, my domain is narrow, means that actually big things have a hard time getting in. And so it was more at sort of the policy level where people might engage. What I was very fortunate about was that my firm embraced my ability to think through things like this and asked me to help other people with their own research processes. So I oversaw other people's research, helped them with other research, became the director of research for the firm. And there, what I tried to do was just help people understand which of their models, their heuristics, I would call them, their rules of thumb, maybe could be interrogated a little bit better to figure out, is this just a pattern from the past that you observe and don't know why it will continue into the future? Or do you have a way of seeing the future that says, here's something that's we know with high conviction about the future. Does it comport with that? Does, does your model, does your framework comport with something we actually know about the future. And so I developed a practice of having a small sort of laboratory that I ran by myself of investigating questions that other people thought, well, that's probably not tractable or that's just not relevant or it's outside. And once in a while, I'd find something that turned out to be highly tractable and insightful and useful. So in the way that China had I was assigned China. I found it. I didn't find it on my own. But when I discovered it, I realized it was outside of the conversation and could be brought in in a productive way. I started looking for other things like that. And 
it was in that spirit that I started working on climate change, which was, this is a thing that if it's big, it's really big, but I never hear anybody talk about it in finance. And even if it were a big thing, I don't know who would work on it. And so I started working on it. And the way I started working on it was a different kind of fundamental work than the China work, which was walking around, talking to people and reading about um, anal finding analogous places, even if those analogies were somewhat tenuous. And so what I did first was read journal articles from the 70s and 80s by scientists about climate change. And what I discovered was those models offered forecasts of how the climate would change that were incredibly prescient. And I was working in a, an environment where if you were right 60% of the time and didn't even know why, you could get fabulously rich. Whereas these scientists had laid out a, an explanation for how a system worked and the system had worked exactly as they had foretold and nobody was using it. And so actually my first, when I started working on climate change, I didn't tell anybody I was doing it. And my first communication with my firm was a year after I had started this work. And I sent out an email called, just the subject line was unused models. And I started it out saying, I have a set of models that have been extremely predictive and they tell us a lot about what's coming over the next 30 years. Let me show you some graphs. And I showed graphs of uh, the forecast of temperature rise with the subsequent data, forecast of sea level rise, ice uh, coverage, but I stripped off the labeling. All you could see were the numbers. And then I said, do you want these models? And people were like, yes, these are so much better than my bond model. This is so much better than my interest rate carry model, my currency model. This is so much better than my PE to growth model. Yes, what are these models? I said, great, they're climate change models. And we should be using them because they have, they're extremely robust. They've done very well. And they tell us a lot about what's coming. And some people were excited to learn about that. And lots of people were like, well, that's a dirty trick. And I said, I don't understand how it's a dirty trick. It's... <laughs> I'm giving you better information about the future. And in finance, that's what you should want. In fact, in life, it's a good, uh, it, it would generally be nice to be able to anticipate things. And so I realized that there were these models that were predictive. And then I started working backwards. I started learning about how, in the same way I had been curious, how did industrialization and urbanization happen? How did we get to this point? And that's the biggest discovery for me that I wish had I wish were more publicly known, which is that the Earth's climate was unstable until 10,000 years ago, at which point it stabilized in this period we call, or scientists call the Holocene, but basically starting 10,000 BCE, so 12,000 years ago, starting 10,000 BCE, the climate stabilized at this level that was just perfect for humans. Nowhere on earth was too hot for us. So we're both big mammals. We need to offload heat. If we are in an environment that is 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 37, uh, 35 degrees uh, centigrade, so 35 degrees centigrade or 95 Fahrenheit and 100% humidity, you and I would die very shortly in that environment because we could not cool. We would overheat. So this is, that's the ceiling on human habitability. And from 10,000 BCE to now, it was never that temperature. It was just below at the hottest places. So the hottest places you've been, you're in Atlanta on the worst summer day, 
you're still well clear of that, well short of that level. If you're in the shade, you have a drink, you're hydrated, you're okay if you're healthy. And so there was this stability over 10,000 years. And I realized that stability makes everything else easier. That stability is probably the handmaiden to complexity, to this civilization we have that's so robust. And I actually was meeting with a climate scientist named Ken Caldera at Stanford uh, at the time. And I asked him, I said, this, it seems to me like civilization started settlements. The first settlements are around 9,500 BC that civilization is built because we have a stable climate. And he said, yeah, everybody knows that. And I was like, nobody knows that. Absolutely nobody knows that. And I racked my brain. I remembered in, in probably seventh or eighth grade, I had taken an earth science class where we'd been told that magically around the world, around the same time, different communities started agriculture. Nobody knew how did they tell each other? How did they know? Well, what happened was for a few hundred years, they had stability. And they're like, this seems like it's going to last. Let's plant some things. And so humans, the first humans like us came around about 200,000 years ago. They were nomads for 190,000 years because the climate was never stable. And so that was very powerful for me, not just in an investment setting in context, but in any context to know stability is the reason. So I'm looking at you, you at me in our respective houses. Our houses are built for a particular climate, yours for one climate, mine for another. The road outside your house, the road outside mine is built for a particular climate. The storm sewer in your town and mine are engineered for a specific climate. And they're all based on the idea that what happened in the past is what will happen in the future. And we can make these assumptions about the models of our, make us what I would call, uh, uh, we would have a model in mind. And that model is, we can look backwards and implicitly use that to look forwards. Well, if you can do that, then lots of the concerns that our earliest ancestors had go away. You can anticipate the future. Well, we can start planning. And what is finance but planning? Planning is expect making having expectations for the future, building for the future. And what I realized was, okay, none of my colleagues are thinking about the climate underpinning everything they do. And this thing that is most fundamental to civilization is changing and nobody's paying attention. And if I think about all the models that will go haywire, I mean, the models of what would happen to oil prices had to change to incorporate China. That's pretty minor compared to the models that are all around us, implicit and explicit, that will change when this perfectly stable thing becomes unstable. And when the bounds that we lived in start being broken. And so I started realizing this is not a narrow problem. This is not a specialist problem. This is a problem of how we conceive of the world. This is not a, this is not a narrow insight. This is a framework that I completely lacked and the people around me seemed to lack. And so I started working from then on almost exclusively on how do I understand the climate myself, how much of that can be shared and translated with others, and then how can we work together to change the way people consider the world they live in so that we appreciate the value of this stability and prepare for the instability that's already baked into the system. 
And so that's what I started doing starting in, yeah, 2014 or so. And did you, did you capture your, the imaginations of your fellow investors? You know, it's interesting. I looked at, uh, well, I looked at the Wellington side and I know Wellington has been doing a lot of work and that you've generated a lot of work there to sort of try to bake climate into assessments. Uh, on their website, it's very interesting. They had a little video on what they call the morning meeting. And being a journalist and, and having been in network television for most of my career, we had a morning meeting. And in that morning meeting, it was, here are the stories of today and only today. And then there would be futures meetings. And those would be, here's what we're working on over the next week, over the next few weeks, over the next few months. It didn't extend beyond that. And I'm thinking, well, there's some parallel there to the morning meetings. And were you able to, to bake this in? I was, I was fascinated because at Wellington, and I'm sure there are other firms who do things like this, um, you know, th there was this idea, which I found fascinating, that they have people from different disciplines lead the morning meeting. And I was sort of trying to see the parallel between that and network news. And when I was at CNN for many years, we had an environment unit. But in some ways, it was siloed. And in fact, I've been looking at the headlines over the past few days. I've, I've identified a lot of really important climate change stories, uh, 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 ecosystem stories. It's in a separate category. And I just, I just wonder, like right now, you can take this anywhere you want, but I was thinking, boy, I wonder how Spencer Glendon reads the economic, uh, the economic headlines from this week which are all focused on the impact that inflation may have, the impact that you know, supply chain issues may have, but you're looking at it through a specific set of lenses, and I don't see the word climate in any of these urgent economic stories, and I'm not sure, I feel like shouting to you, get me rewrite. Is there any way that you could burn that into a story so that it becomes second nature to say, when we discuss the economy and how it might impact lives, we can also talk about climate. Or is that just a, is that too far out? So I don't think it's too far out. Uh, and your comparison uh, is quite accurate. The, the importance of immediacy uh, is, the, or the value, um, put differently, the ability, the ability of people to focus on the immediate is almost infinite. And the ability of people to focus on and step back to see the longer term is much harder. And I partly left Wellington because I didn't think I could make much of a difference there. And, um, but I set up uh, and worked with other people to create partnerships between Wellington and scientists at the Woodwell Climate Research Center that I hoped would over time affect the culture and the practices at Wellington, which it seems to have done. And I'm not close to their to what they do now, but they're they have a robust partnership and they are actively working to make climate part of their work. I still think that the challenges of something called modern portfolio theory are quite substantial. So modern portfolio theory comes from uh, an academic environment that looked back at finance over the 
over the course of the 20th century, essentially, and said, the best strategy is complete diversification. So what you should own is a little bit of everything. And so the owning of a little bit of everything is complete in index funds, for example. That's the idea behind the index funds. But even in a place like Wellington or Goldman Sachs or, or Fidelity or whatever, there's almost always a benchmark. That benchmark is a way of forcing a kind of uh, portfolio distribution. And the idea is we still want to be exposed to everything. But at the, at the highest level, if you take the pension funds, for example, that I spent time with, they are mostly obsessed with owning a bit of everything. And when I started working with them on, on climate change, this was the biggest problem for them was, well, we already have this framework where we need to be fully diversified. And I would say, well, okay, let's take oil as an example. Oil is a big part of your benchmark and you're compelling yourself to own it. You're saying if it's 8% of the stock market, we have to own 8% of it maybe plus or minus a little bit. I said, let's take oil as an example. It's extremely likely that oil will go to zero over time. There just won't be an oil market at some point in the future. And oil is very volatile. So you have now one asset class that's in this group that is both volatile and will go to zero. Why would you commit yourself to owning it? Why would you force yourself at all times to own it? And they said, well, we, we have this theory, this modern portfolio theory. We can't walk away from it. It's the, it's the framework we use to see the world. And I said, well, then you're going to ride that index all the way down to zero. You're going to wind up at zero passively along the way. And what I came across was pretty widely, and this gets at your point about journalism is why I bring it up in this context, is that there are narrow decisions that can be made within each domain, and those domains are well-defined. But big strategic decisions about how we conceive of the world or how we orient ourselves towards the future, we don't really have a way to do that. And I have a reason why I think that's true, which is that basically if you're at a place like Wellington or at a place like CNN at the time when you were there, nothing really bad has happened. And so your scope of like, what's a bad outcome? Well, it's like a bear market or it's a recession, or maybe it's a little round of layoffs. But if you've not experienced terrible things happening, if the bounds of your imagination are, well, there's like a bull market and a bear market, not there's a great depression or there's a war or there's a plague, or there is you know, some sort of catastrophe, then the scope of debate narrows enormously. I was in a small meeting with Hank Paulson, who was treasury secretary and chairman of Goldman Sachs, say climate change could be as bad as the 2008 recession. And I said to him, well, that's just the limits of your imagination. That's just the worst thing that happened to you. You've defined the bounds so narrowly that your only frame of reference is this thing that wasn't nearly that bad. And when I read Ray Dalio, who is the director of Bridgewater, you read his one of his books, you would think that the 2011 European banking crisis was like an outbreak of cholera or was, you know, Mount Pinatubo going off or something. Most people by 2015, even in finance, couldn't remember that, that, that passage. But for him, that was like a really dramatic environment. 
And so for all these things, I remember this meeting I went to when I was in graduate school, hosted by John Kenneth Galbraith, an old economist who had been very kind to me, actually. Uh, and he gave this talk and he stood up at the front of the room and I was the only economist to go. All the other economists at Harvard had thought he was sort of washed up and not, not relevant because he wasn't modern. He wasn't, he didn't use math in the same way. He wasn't sophisticated. And he stood up at the front of the room and he held up uh, uh, his hands as if he were holding a book. And he said, I want you to imagine that I'm holding a history book. And I want you to think about the distribution of pages. Because in a history book, there are long periods of time when nothing happens. And so there are only a few pages. And then there are short periods of time when huge things happen and they have lots of pages. And he said, we're living through a period where nothing's really happening. And what we've built is an economics discipline and a financial discipline that's trying to exploit small changes in this period that's extremely quiescent, extremely placid. And what happens when you have something cataclysmic happens is economists say, well, we can't predict that. There's nothing we can do about that. That's the war, or that's this other thing. And so it's true. If you look at the academic uh, economics, it's all, well, you take out World War II, or you, you take out the Depression. You take out these things that really mattered. You just focus on the times when, in Galbraith's terms, nothing happened. So I was working in the 2000s. So we'd had one financial crisis, and there had been no inflation since the 70s. Nobody had experienced something terrible happening. And so the imagination for something terrible to happen was just so limited absolutely limited. So this gets, so now this gets to your current work. And I have to say that I've got this book on my desk because a, a couple of years ago, I interviewed uh, Samantha Power, uh, former ambassador to the UN. And uh, this was her Pulitzer Prize winning book, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide. The reason it's relevant is one of her main conclusions was that the reason the, the United States over multiple genocides of the 20th century didn't take more forceful action, one of the main reasons was policymakers and, and citizens failed to imagine just how bad it could get. And she actually tells a story of how she was a young journalist in Bosnia. And you rem might remember the story. There was this sort of a, a, a Serbian missile hit this playground and it was the playground massacre. And she thought she could never see anything worse. She went to cover it after it happened. Couldn't be anything worse than that playground massacre. And indeed, things got much worse than the playground massacre. So your project is really trying to help us not just imagine, but feel it inside what our various, as you call them, probable futures are, depending on what precisely happens based on incremental increases in the overall temperature and climate of our Earth. So, and I know you've got some, if, if, just so people can get a visceral sense, if you want to share the screen, uh, I think you've, you've got control over it. Whatever you feel like sharing that you feel can expand our imaginations. And then I just want to telegraph for you because one of my dreams is, I mean, you've basically with these maps that you are creating, to me, it's like a situation room. It's like, it's, it's, it's the map room, it's the situation room. It's where major decisions should and can be made. 
And I want to figure out with you, who can we, and I'm sure you've already thought about this and brought people in to see these maps, but if, if you viewed the probable futures map room as the situation room for major investment decisions, is there anybody we can bring into your room who is making investments now based on this totally diversified uh, portfolio, you know, a uh, uh, way of being that the finance industry now has, who might just say, I'm going to take a slice of what we're doing and I'm going to go away from that theory and base my investments on the probable futures map room. Let's let's orient people around what what you're talking about. So this is the history of temperature on our planet going back 100 million years. And uh, I don't have any tattoos. If I got a tattoo, this is the tattoo I would get. This is sort of like a orienting document for me that I wish everybody could know and feel and see. It's central to the Probable Futures platform. What you see here is time on the bottom and four panels, 1850 to 2100 is at one scale. So this is the individual years are visible here. Here, it's play a longer period. Here now, time has gotten stretched out even more. So it goes from 10,000 to a million. And here it goes from a million to 100 million. So it is not a consistent time scale. Uh, this is zooming out, zooming in somewhat, zooming in more, zooming in a lot. And this is the period here in the green of civilization. This is when we settled. And zero, in this case, is the average temperature between 1850 and 1900. So the average temperature before industrialization, before we really started changing the atmosphere with fossil fuels. And what you see is that zero is quite consistent going back 12,000 years with small variations around it. Before that, our first ancestors came in around here and they experienced wildly shifting climates. So this is the deepest, this is called the glacial maximum, what is sort of colloquially known as a, a deep ice age. And these warm periods relatively are called interglacials. We live in an interglacial, which means there are still some glaciers on earth. Uh, there's still some ice cover and not maximum ice cover. So we had this pattern. We've got the yellow band. This is a long period of time when temperature went up and down as changes in the earth's tilt, its axis, its orbit made the earth change its orientation towards the sun so that it would either cool gradually or actually warm pretty quickly. And now we've been in this long period where it was stable. And when people say, well, what's so big about one degree? Well, one degree is breaking out of this green band. And 1.5 is near the maximum of human experience. But also, if you get out around two, two and a half, you're outside the bands of this stable trough, this stable pattern. And so what happens outside of that? Well, we have a nice map of it, which is there's nothing inherently stable about any of this time, but also this whole period of time is very warm to our liking, much warmer than we would like. So if you go back 70 to 100 million years ago, this is the age of dinosaurs. I, like many other kids, thought dinosaurs were pretty cool when I was a kid. A question I never asked is why were there no humans around when there were dinosaurs around? The answer was, it was just too hot for big mammals. Dinosaurs are giant lizards. They're not quite exactly lizards or they weren't exactly lizards, but they are mostly cold-blooded. And cold-blooded creatures, lizards, snakes, creatures that benefited from heat, they thrived. We could not have lived on this earth anywhere. It was just too hot for us physically. And so this is our climate. This is the climate we can thrive in. There's a reason we evolved and there's a reason we were so successful as a species, but this is the ideal band for us. This is the band of temperatures in which we really thrived. And so this is the framework uh, that I think people can benefit from understanding is we lived in a very narrow period of time that had basically no climate change. 
And so when we talk about climate change, it is new for humans since the dawn of civilization. And it was so long that we stopped paying much attention to it. So what we've done is map that past. So this is a map from the probable, straight off the Probable Futures website. This is the map of average temperature around the world. And as you can see here, it's uh, the little carrot indicates this was at 0.5 degrees C, which is between 1971 and 2000. Basically the end of the 20th century, this is how the climate worked. This is the average temperature of each place. So here in these parts of uh, the Amazon, the average temperature was between 26 and 31 degrees C, which is quite warm. Here in these places, in the in the dark blue, it's averaging around 10 degrees C. And at the edge of the blue and green, the, the, the top of the blue and the bottom of the green, all around the world are prosperous places. Japan, the parts of Australia that are prosperous, the parts of South Africa that are prosperous, the parts of China that are prosperous, the parts of Europe that are prosperous, North America, that's a very comfortable place. And going back at least 6,000 years, that's where most humans lived as well. So humans started in, in Africa, but they stayed in pretty small numbers in Africa, but where human population really surged was in places where it averaged around 10 to 15 degrees C, it was comfortable. And so this is the backdrop. Now we say that's average temperature, what about cold, freezing days? This is the number of days when it stayed below freezing. And most people say, well, I don't like it when it's freezing. I'd be happy to live in a warmer climate. But it's important to notice how much freezing is just in the Northern Hemisphere. So the Northern Hemisphere is the home to almost all of the freezing temperatures. And in these places, all of nature and all of society are built around those freezing temperatures. So half of the vegetables in the United States are grown in the far West, in California. They are irrigated by snowmelt. So the snow in the mountains is what feeds the nation of the United States. And you have these areas up farther north that have permafrost underneath them that need lots of days below freezing to keep that permafrost frozen. And lastly, this temperature of what's called a wet bulb temperature, 32 degrees C or 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So this is 90 degrees Fahrenheit and 99% humidity. What you see is that at 0.5 degrees C in the late 20th century, this was unlikely to happen anywhere. You can see there's a very small place here where there's a little bit of green, if you just squint, where there was the chance of one day a year having this temperature in the Middle East, where right on the water, it was humid and hot. But what you can see is this 32 degrees C, which is extremely hard for people's health, didn't happen anywhere. And so what we do is take the body of climate knowledge that was out there in the same way that there were these unused models that my colleagues hadn't availed themselves of in finance, there are actually climate tools that allow you to see the likely weather going forward at different degrees of warming around the world with quite good accuracy in a very local scale, but nobody had made them public. There was no good way to access them. So my collaborators and I started Probable Futures in part to make the world's most insightful science available to everybody. It already was a theoretical public good. It goes back to my point about how we, if you take humanity, knew a lot about climate, but actually that knowledge was in a very small sliver. A very few people knew it. And those people 
weren't great at communicating what they knew to everyone else. So in the same way that that climate scientist had said to me, everybody knows that. And I said, well, actually, nobody knows it. I did the following, and this may help tie our conversation together. When I was in finance, I went to see lots of people inside my firm and outside my firm and say, do you use climate science in your work? And they would, every single person said no. And I said, why not? And they said, well, I don't find it useful. I said, well, have you ever asked a question of climate science? They no, I've never asked a question. I said, would you know what question to ask? Would you know how to ask a question of climate science? They said, actually, I never, never thought about it that way. And so when I left Wellington, I started to collaborate with folks at McKinsey. And our work was based around this idea, what questions should we ask of climate science that would be meaningful and start to have to build a practice of inquiring of the science in useful ways. So you talk about a situation room. A situation room, I have never been in a formal situation room, but I can imagine there's a problem or there's an understanding that this is a place where you big bring problems to be discussed. There were no practices, norms, or vocabulary to say, well, what are the questions we would ask of maps like this? What are the questions we would be should be concerned about? And so, the early McKinsey work, for example, said, let's just figure out how many days a year it will be too hot to work outside in India. So we've zoomed in here and we're looking at India. And this is the number of days above at a slightly lower threshold, but 28 degrees C. Um, for our audience, actually, we'll, we'll go back to the 0.5 degrees and we'll go over. We'll assume that most of our audience is American and uh, hope not to give people vertigo. But um, so the map here is organized that green is one to three days a year, blue is four to seven. Um, so it's a couple of days, less than a week, two, one to two weeks, two weeks to a, to a month, and then more than a month. And so this is in the late 20th century, the hottest day or two in Houston. The hot, it's actually Atlanta would never be this hot. And so it's really, and, and if we zoom in, in fact, we can zoom in on Houston say, well, how many days a year was it like this? And you click there. So on average, the three grossest days in Houston is what 28 degrees wet bulb is. So now we ask this question about India because there are hundreds of millions of people who work outdoors. That is their livelihood is working outdoors. And you say, well, how many days of the year? Well, in these places here, it's, it's still just a few, right? Less than this place here, it's... Uh, on average, five days in a cool year, which is the 10th percentile, in a cool year, there would be no such days. And in a very warm year, there'd be 12 days. But if we see what happens, and as we warm, those numbers jump. And it really is unsafe to be working in this environment, to be straining yourself in any way. And in many ways, actually, these maps are maps of kidney disease, because the body is trying to work so hard to cool itself. It is processing water so quickly that actually the striations on these maps match quite well to the onset of kidney disease in places in, in around the world, actually. And so if at two degrees C, comparing it back to when there were just five days a year on average, in the same place, in an average year, there would be 24 such days. And in a warm year, there would be 42 such days. So you got a month and a half when it's unsafe to work outside. If we go up to three degrees C, these are big numbers. This is the prime of growing season. 
is going to do things not just to the human body, but to crops and other things. But now you see that all of India pretty much is lit up, whereas back here, this was an isolated problem. And by the way, just for because I, I'm sure a lot of the people watching and listening to this are are familiar with that 1.5 degree mark. That's sort of like what we've been hearing. Maybe we can slow things down so we never get above that. But now most people realistically are saying, no, no, we're we're already basically there and we're going beyond that. So it is important to look at two and 2.5 and three. That's exactly right. So what the way I think about this is, so if you click on the eye here, it'll say, this is 1971 to 2000 is 0.5 degrees C past, it says. Now, if you click on one, it's recent. One degree C we passed in about 2017. So we're now at 1.1 or so, or we were most recently. We'll see how this year turns out. 1.5, we're likely is, we say, impending. The chances of stopping before 1.5 now are effectively zero. In fact, we're likely to pass 1.5 this decade. So you say we're is likely by 2030 and the probability of stopping below this. But the higher levels are potential levels of warming. So we do two things here, and I think they're both relevant. One is we're giving you these higher levels of warming instead of giving you dates, because when we reach these numbers is uncertain, and if we reach these higher numbers is uncertain. That uncertainty depends on what we work, what depends on what society does. So probable futures isn't a forecasting tool. It's a scenario tool. But if we reach those numbers, the map is probably going to look that way. That's exactly right. So the way climate models work is they give you outcomes for a given atmosphere. So here's how the atmosphere, here's the composition of the atmosphere. We will, this is, the models tell us what the weather will be like. Well, when we, if, if we have, so three degrees C, is uh, if we stay on the path we're on, it's uh, likely by the 2060s. If we change our path, it can happen later. If we change our path a lot, it can be avoided. And so we want these numbers to be both uh, indicators of, of a, a likely outcome, but also scenarios for us to avoid. One of the turns of phrase I really like is we need to manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. I just have to tell you that when I looked through your maps, I didn't do the drop-down menu on three degrees centigrade. And now, of course, I'm thinking, oh, my kids aren't going to even be that old in 2060. This could be the life I am leaving or we are leaving them. And I know you've spoken eloquently about, well, number one, about how important it is to the older people you know who are in positions of power, that they be admired and respected by the younger generation. And we've got to figure out something. First of all, this hits on two things. We've never experienced this map here, but I'm already getting anxiety looking at it. So I think you've succeeded in, in making us feel a little bit what's happening here. The other thing is, you used a phrase that that's stuck in my head since the beginning of the conversation, how Starting from that story you mentioned of, you know, you and your wife in the car and different climate control zones for people, you know, six inches away, you said, we, we, we're, we make the atoms dance. And in another presentation you gave, you talked about how it's not just about heat, it's about energy and infusing this closed system with so much energy makes it so much more unpredictable. So when, I'm, when I've been perusing probable futures, 
and of course you're doing this intentionally, it's not even just about heat, far from it. That's right. And so what you can also see here is the uncertainty. So the range gets very wide. And this is 10th percentile and 90th percentile, which means that there are actually 20% of the observations are outside of that. These aren't extremes. These are just a warm year and a cool year. And so the climate is likely to be extremely unstable, extremely inconsistent, but on average, much hotter. And if you think about what's happening in India, it is a agriculture is most people's work is agriculture. Figuring out how the agricultural patterns, the rainfall patterns, the monsoon, the melting from the mountains that irrigates much of much of uh, India, how the range of temperatures, what will grow, when it will grow, all of that just gets harder and harder and harder. And in a very stable climate, the, the farmers of India figured out over time, because it was the same conditions decade after decade after decade, they figured out what to plant, when to plant it. You develop these heuristics, you develop these rules of thumb that tell you this is how the system works. But as you leave stability, you get closer and closer to saying, I don't know how the system works. I'm not gonna make a commitment. And so when I've shown these maps to people in, in uh, high levels of finance, they say, oh my God, no one is going to lend or make long-term commitments to places that will be under stress. And so one of the things I'm most concerned about is that people will sort of give up on the future and in doing so deprive uh, people around the world of a chance to prepare, of a chance to avoid, because it will take capital to make the changes necessary to get off of this path that currently goes to three degrees. And so we can go back for your purposes, I'll zoom out, you can see globally, this level of warming, this level of, of high temperature at 0.5 degrees C was pretty rare. Only Bangladesh really got like this more than a week a year. At three degrees C, it's a global phenomenon. Well, and there you can see at three degrees C, there are gonna be an awful lot of people trying to become nomads again and get not become nomads, find a new play, habitable place to stay. And what we now consider an immigration crisis is going to be like nothing compared to that. That's correct. And so this is an avoidable outcome. This is a preventable future. And my firm belief is that part of the reason we're not avoiding it currently, we're doing very little to avoid it, is people have an abstract notion that the future is either one that has electric cars and is basically the same, or it's some Mad Max dystopia that's very far away and there's nothing we can do about it. This is not that, this is in between. This is lots of suffering and an undermining and a weakening of civilization. And my hope is that by making this more vivid, one of the things I've talked about, uh, I've worked for many years with a psychologist on this work. And one of the things that we talk about is the difference between anxiety and fear. So there are lots of people who are anxious about climate change. And what this uh, woman I've worked with says is that anxiety is unstructured. Anxiety is a feeling that doesn't have a specific focus. You feel bad and often you'll, she says, you'll hang your anxiety on some hook, but it's something you can't quite, it's a bad feeling, but it's unconstructive. Fear is much more specific. Fear is I know what to fear, I can name it, and I can start to think about how to avoid it, how to deal with it. 
And what I would say is there's very little fear about climate change. There's lots of anxiety. And lots of people have a low level of anxiety. And then young people, there are an increasing number of young people who have a high degree of anxiety. And they're not wrong to do that. But it's rarely articulated as what will it actually be like? What are the actual consequences? And so it's called probable futures because we want people to start to think about, to populate that range. So if we go back to that temperature graph, you think about there's a fan chart. Or if you think about these temperatures here, there's a range of temperatures we face. And we could live in this one. And we could figure out how to live in that one. Or we could live in this one. And between it are 2.5 and 2. And all of those are going to be different. And if we think clearly about what it will mean, A, we should definitely, we have to prepare for 1.5. Even when it's 1.5, 2 is a risk. And so as a, as a precautionary measure, we should be preparing for 2. But we should try to desperately avoid these higher numbers. And the hope is with the clarity about what those would be like, what it would feel like, what it would the consequences of it would be. And so if you take the work with McKinsey that I uh, am proud to be associated with, they didn't say, well, what will happen to Indian GDP if this many people can't work outside? And the reason is nobody knows. We've never had this many people live in a very un, you know, unlivable environment. Trying to map that through to migration, political change, unrest, changes in investment, changes in individual and group behavior, to get that to a GDP number would be just folly. And so one of the things that I push against in the, in the economic discipline is this effort to turn everything into dollars, as opposed to say, well, here are big changes in the physics of the world. And we don't know yet what, the, what life would be like under these circumstances, but we can tell it would be very different. And it's extremely unlikely to be just marginally different from what we have now. And so portraying what I would call the unmanageable, which is three degrees or above, as a way to motivate staying under that level and, and sort of, and so what, what we say about probable futures is that it's also a useful tool. I want to bring up the second reason we do this is that we'll zoom in on uh, a place in, we'll stay in India. So pick a place in India where there is a municipality and the people in this municipality need to figure out what infrastructure to build, what to fix, what to prepare for. And so maybe they need to build cooling centers where people can go who don't have air conditioning can take shelter. Or maybe they need to plan for the hundred year storm. So this is what was the hundred year storm. How often does this one in a hundred year storm or this 1% chance storm happen? If you go to three degrees C, what you see is there are places where maybe here, the what was a one in a hundred year storm is six times more frequent. And so the one in a hundred year storm goes from being every hundred years or not every hundred years, but having a 1% chance every year, which means that, okay, we can't really plan around that. That's sort of the limits of what we can plan for to, oh, this has a 15% a chance or 16% chance of happening every year. What was the one in a hundred year storm now has to be just kind of a wet year. That's a different storm sewer. That's a different irrigation system. That's a different flood preparedness. Those are different building codes. That's a different world to live in. And we want these people to be able to prepare 
for these worlds, or at least understand what the pathway to that is so that they're not surprised by environmental changes that are likely to come with climate change. It's fascinating to me that you raise the issue of working with a psychologist to understand what, what might change people's you know, uh, ability to feel like they're empowered to act. It's not hopeless. And uh, I would love to bring it back if you're comfortable talking about it, because I, I just read snippets of your childhood and your childhood illness. And there was a story about what a therapist told you about how to deal with your life when you have something that's almost debilitating. If you don't mind sharing that story with me, because all those maps you showed us, they could have a tendency to make us feel paralyzed. And you have been through a situation yourself where there is so much uncertainty and listening to the sweep of your life and the intellectual curiosity that's driven you and your professional accomplishments and what you're trying to do here. It's sort of remarkable when I think about your roots as a child suffering through this illness. Can you give us that and tell us what you've drawn from that? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sometimes sheepish about it because it's this work isn't about me, but I'm happy to share it to the extent that it's useful to people. And so I have a, an autoimmune, I have a bad immune system. And so it first manifested itself uh, in a disease called ulcerative colitis when I was a teenager. And ulcerative colitis is no fun. It's painful and uh, bad for your your body. Basically, you your your colon doesn't work very well, and so food races through you. You lose weight. You lose blood. And this happened to me when I was 15 years old. And in every other way, I lived the most privileged life you could imagine. I lived in a in a in a nice town with uh, loving parents in a good community and. And so in a way, everything should have been going great. And all of a sudden, this one part of my body, the cells on the lining of my intestine decided to go to war with each other. And that's what happens in an autoimmune disease. Your body starts attacking healthy cells. And I was debilitated. And so I lost a lot of weight. I couldn't go to school. And I just couldn't get over it. I couldn't get better. So years were going by. And at one point, my mother arranged for me to see a therapist. And and I went in to see this guy and I, he said, well, you know, why, what brings you in here? I said, well, you know, my mother brought me in. So why, why are you here? He said, well, and so I started telling him about my life and he's, and, and essentially he said at some point, it sounds like your life is out of control. And I said, yeah, I just feel like I, like I can't control my physical body. I certainly can't control anything. Like I'm both a teenager and have this, I have no control over my body and I'm, it's very hard to, to deal with. And he said, well, you're not totally out of control. Are there things you can control? And I said, well, some days all I can do is like get out of bed and take a shower. He said, then set that as your goal. Say to yourself, today, I'm going to do that. And then if you have a better day, say today, I'm going to go to school for two hours. And if you have a better day, and each time you accomplish something that you set out to do, say, that was the most I could do. Those are my limits. But within those limits, I have some amount of control, some ability to function and to, to make my way in the world. And this was an important lesson to me because as I looked around at similarly privileged people, they all had dreams that they could do everything. There were no limits for them. And I realized at the age of 15, 16, I was always going to have limits and those limits were going to be pretty non-negotiable. My body would rebel. My body would just say no. 
And so I had to learn to live within the confines of my body and what it could do. And learning that at an early age, especially in a culture where you're told to fulfill your dreams, to have the maximum dream you could have. Everyone could be president. By that time, it was obvious to me, there's no way I could be president. I'd be sick all the time. Like, did, Not that I aspired to be president, but I had to say, there are things I can't do. And even when I was hired at Wellington, one of my first conversations with my boss was like, I just need you to understand, sometimes I'm going to be sick and I'm just not going to come to work and I'll you know, be paid less when that happens and that's okay. I just want you to know and over time, each time I was offered more, more responsibility or asked to take on, I would say to the person offering it, you need to understand I'm unreliable. I'm physically unreliable. I will do the best I can. And then when I was about, uh, I was in, let's see, my early 30s, I was diagnosed with a degenerative liver disease. And I was told I would need a transplant to survive. At some point, I would be on death's door. And with luck, I would get a transplant. And that provided clarity for me that, okay, I've got some number of years before I get really sick. And that too was clarifying. It sort of said, well, I've got limits. Let's figure out what I can do within those limits. And so this living within limits already made sense to me because of, uh, in a formal way, because of my work as an engineer. I was a systems engineer. It's a closed system. Okay, my system had, had bounds that were a little bit different than other people's. But also my work on catastrophe, my, my being curious about Detroit made it clear to me that I wasn't immune from terrible things happening. Terrible things happen. And then spending time in Russia and spending time on the south side of Chicago, I had a constantly populated imagination for what really bad outcomes might look like. And this combination of knowing my limits, which gave me clarity about I had to choose to do some things and not choose to do others. If I was going to do A, I couldn't always do B. And this was at a time when the culture of the United States, I mean, the culture of, you know, 30% of all podcasts is how you can do everything. Life hacks and you can, you know, maximize. And I realized I just can't maximize. I have to choose what I do. I have to choose what's important. I have to embrace trade-offs. I came to think of compromise as a really good word. The, the second half of it is promise. This idea that, okay, let's just choose to live well within bounds because the, the environment in which I was living, this temperate, lovely world with people I enjoy, like even a little bit of that is pretty great. And what I found disorienting and still find troublesome in American culture, in the culture of finance, in the culture of economics, is this obsession with maximization and realizing that the framework of always maximizing, the framework that if you're leaving any money on the table, you're a failure. I had a conversation with the, the leaders of all of the banking divisions of one of the biggest banks in the world. And one of them said, but if we do what you're saying, we might leave some money on the table. And I said, yeah, you might leave some money on the table and that would be okay. He said, but we can't, we can't ever leave any money on the table. And I said, well, then you're always all in. You're always exposing yourself to risk and bad things will happen. And so I learned for myself that I had to be deliberate about what I chose to do and not do. My wife and I have made choices about how to constrain our lives in ways that 
leaves plenty of space. So why I'm comfortable probably with the probable futures framework is there's a range of outcomes. Within that range, there are really good ways to live. And this is one of the things I tell people about the future. We will live in a less good physical environment. And it's sad. But we could live a lot better in it. We could choose to live well in that space. And it's why I think that places like universities should be thinking about climate change intellectually, morally, philosophically, culturally, in education, in other things. Climate change is a ch challenge to civilization. It's not a technological problem, principally. And so I've been fortunate to have been taught lessons about restraint and compromise that wound up making my life incredibly fulfilling. And as you may know, I was eventually the recipient of a liver transplant. And my friend Carl Long gave me half of his liver. And without friends, I'd be dead. I could have maximized everything else, but without friends, I'd be dead. And the idea that there's no maximizing friendship. There's no maximizing of relationships. There's fostering of them. There's embracing them. There's cultivating them. There's enjoying them. And uh, and so my own body has been a, a helpful guide to living with limits, to understanding limits, to respecting them, and then to celebrating that you can live wonderfully within limits, that believing that life would be better if it were limitless, I think, is is folly. And our ancient ancestors, which I didn't think a lot about before, but before industrialization, people lived knowing that there were limits, and those limits were like the walls of your house. There was a kind of welcomeness to them. That's how the world is, and it's a great world. And I think this idea that we can somehow live beyond the limits of the planet still hold sway in Silicon Valley, in the principle of infinite growth in economics, in the idea that there will always be compounding in finance. The idea of the infinite, I don't think is very satisfying. I don't think it's realistic. I don't think humans actually have the capacity to live in the infinite. And if we could learn to live within the ranges of a really bountiful planet we've been given, we could live extraordinarily well. And so that's the hopeful side of probable futures is we can populate that not a sort of electric car paradise or some kind of dystopia. We can populate a more complicated world that's a little bit degraded, but still quite bountiful and live extraordinarily well in that. And I don't want to overplay the comparison to my, my body, but it's pretty great to be alive if you live on those terms. It's an incredible story, and it just so happens to be a perfect metaphor. I don't know whether the God, everything was aligned to make this metaphor perfect, but I mean, uh, it really is. And, and I have to say that I, I, I hope a lot of young people, you know, one of the things I think I heard from your executive director at Probable Futures, Allison Smart, and other people who work with a lot of young people, this idea that a lot of young people who know the climate science are thinking about foregoing having children. And I think maybe if they hear your thoughts on living within limits, that may be a less attractive alternative, that they may indeed move forward and say, you know, we can still create an awfully good world. We've still got a chance to preserve, let's say, an awful lot of what's great about this world if we keep those maps front and center and, and, and don't fail to imagine how bad it could get. Yeah, 
I, I think that there's good reason to hope that wrestling with this problem, facing this problem, prompts us to be better people. I, I think about the, if you, if you take the lesson of climate science the following way, it's that about the time when humans were really gaining an enormous amount of power in the late 20th century, scientists figured out that if we could just restrain our emissions of a couple of molecules, we could live in this comfortable climate forever. And it really is a couple of molecules, carbon dioxide and methane principally. If we restrain ourselves, we can have this planet indefinitely on wonderful terms. And the rebellion by society was, no, we don't want those limits. We don't want to restrain ourselves. And the simple morality of that is, is pretty galling. I, I think young people are right to be angry because it was really just restraint that was necessary to keep the stable climate. And now we're already in an unstable climate. And so maybe ending with this metaphor would be a useful one. I, I think of the climate as our house. And starting in 10,000 BCE, our ancestors were given a wonderful house, a stable, ideal, comfortable house. And they didn't really have to do anything to maintain it. Now, it happens to be the case that the people who lived for the next uh, 9,000 years were quite respectful of the house. They lived on its terms. But starting about 1850, we started saying, you know what? We could make this place even better. We could make it more in our to our liking. And so we started pulling oil out of the ground. We started taking from the planet at a much faster pace. And when that happened, we started doing damage to the house. Now, before it became critical, climate scientists warned us, like, the house is getting a little troubled. So where we are now at a little over one degrees of warming, and where we'll be at one and a half, we will still live in a great house, but it will need maintenance. We will need to commit to maintaining the house. And so to those young people, I say, let's figure out how to keep the house the way it is and maintain it. And many of those young people will spend their lives working on the house and housework. This house, this maintaining of the climate can be very good work, can be work that actually anchors us to the land in many good ways. But if we keep wrecking the house, if we keep undermining the foundation and the roof, then most work will be maintaining the house. That will be the main thing is maintaining the house. Right. And if you go far enough, then you wind up homeless. And in that homeless world, that world where we're all nomads again, but at a scale and with an, uh, un, an unprecedented scale and in a, in, a, in a depleted world, it will be much harder. That is a world to avoid at all costs. That is a world where it's hard to convey to a young people, you could live well in that world. But the worlds that are now and proximate, the worlds we can live in, we just live more aware of our physical surroundings. And we'd live more aware of our relationships with each other. That sounds like a pretty good idea anyway. Living more in tune with nature and living more in tune with each other sound like the same kinds of things people have learned in the last two years they would like more of in their lives. And so the climate is pushing us towards our better instincts anyway, if we can listen to it. So interesting. Spencer Glenn, and thank you so much for joining me on this, on this wave maker conversation.
It was my pleasure. Thanks so much.